It's amazing how uh, change uh, upsets us sometimes, isn't it? The normal routines of life become easier when there's a change. Uh, things get upset. But um, this morning we're going to concentrate on some one, one verse of scripture which over the last few weeks has impacted me greatly as I've considered this morning, considered Christmas time, uh, considered what that means to us in our culture and society. I'll start with a question for you. What does Christmas mean to you? In your own hearts and in your own minds and your own souls, what does this time of year mean? That's the first question. The second question is, how does our society and the places we live shape your view of this season? We don't live in a cocoon, we don't live in a, in a uh, vacuum. We are shaped by our environment. So I just pose those two questions for you. You know, it's Christmas to you, it's just a time of celebration, just a time of holiday, a time of uh, not much reflection. Or is the reflection that you have based on what society demands of you? Gift giving, uh, ham, lamb and pavlova. By the way, pavlova is a New Zealand invention. So you're aware of that. Like many you know, good things in Australia, New Zealand's invented it first. Um, so yeah, ham, lamb, pavlova. Is Christmas for you just about gift giving and gift receiving? Perhaps it's more about gift receiving than giving. Is your focus in Christmas family? Is your focus in Christmas others? I can't answer those questions for you, but this morning what I'd like to do is just share a bit of my heart from the Gospel of John. And hopefully... By doing that, the Spirit of God will grab this verse and maybe for the first time or maybe just uh, as a re-encouragement, help you look at the true meaning of Christmas. The verse I have in mind is this verse in uh, John chapter 1. I haven't chosen a traditional Christmas uh, portion to share with you today, just this one verse. You have a Bible, you can turn to it. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. In the ESV it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The New English translation is another very good translation. I just want to read how they've translated these words. Now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We saw his glory the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth who came 
from the Father. I would consider this the most significant verse in the New Testament on Christmas. Yeah, sure, there's no wise men in here, there's no manger, there's no uh, angels proclaiming the glory of God in a field. But when I see this verse and I, I look at the very first phrase, I am astounded and astonished by God's grace to us. Do we understand the impact of the word becoming flesh? And to help answer that question, we need to first understand, well, what is the word? What on earth is John talking about? He wrote this gospel probably around somewhere in A.D. 90, sometime after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John had a different purpose in writing this gospel for us to digest. His purpose was to give certain elements of Jesus' story so that we might believe. So that we might read this gospel and have no measure of doubt that Christ was the Messiah. And he starts off this gospel in these first 18 verses of the the first chapter of John and he He gives us a little prologue, what we call a prologue, an introduction. And within these 18 verses, you will see he will fold out everything he says here throughout the balance of the next 20-odd chapters. And his only allusion to Christmas is verse 14. And the Word became flesh. we go back to verse 1, we, we start to understand what the word is. The word is not even named. But you will notice in your Bibles it has a capital W. So that gives us some indication that it's a definite person. So let's read verse 1 together. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So right from the beginning of John's gospel, he starts describing this thing called the Word. We read in 14, and this word became flesh. What are some of the things we understand about the word before he's even named? Firstly, we see the word's role in creation. He was the creator. He was in the beginning with God. He was pre-existent. He was not created. The word was coexistent and co-equal in essence and nature with God. He made all things, and Hebrews tells us actually that all things are sustained by the the word of his power. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2 tells us that. 
Verse 3 is amazing. And without him was not anything made that was made. The pre-existent, pre-incarnate word, creator of the universe. Notice the similarity between John 1.1 and Genesis 1.1. You pick that up? In the beginning, God created. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word created. One and the same. What also do we learn about the Word in in this uh, prologue? It's mentioned four times, five times. The Word's role is in giving light and life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word illuminates. The word gives life. The word is light. And then we see in in verse 14, this word became flesh. Flesh, as in you and I. This pre-existent one, this one who reigned in glory, who created life and light. God himself, as part of the Trinity, became flesh. Humble flesh. Flesh that's been described here as being full of grace and truth. Flesh that is human. And in verse 17 we see, finally the word is named. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. The eternal coexistent Christ, the Messiah, became flesh. I don't understand the incarnation. That's the theological word for this process where where we have a virgin with child. It's a mystery to me. I don't think I'll ever fathom it. I don't think you'll ever fathom it. But the wonderful thing is that God did it. And you can say, well, how did God do that? Well, if God is the creator, he can do anything, can he not? If God is the creator through Christ and Christ can come in a human form, there's nothing difficult in that. God is creator who summoned galaxies in this world and humanity by the word of his mouth into being. There is no issue for him becoming flesh. None whatsoever. Because he is God and we are not. What else happens as we look at this verse? We see that 
not only did the word become flesh, but the word dwelt amongst us. It's a really interesting term, and I like what the um, New English Translation says there because it's probably closer to the fact. Now, the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. Uh, some translators will put, and he tabernacled among us. That's uh, an Old Testament term, and, and you say, well, why is that the case? Well, as you read through this uh, prologue, as you read through these verses, you see just a wonderful thing happening. What comes to your mind when you think about the glory of God? When was another time in in Bible history that the glory of God was displayed to a man? It was a Bible quiz, 101. I'll have some answers. Moses, good on you, Carolyn. Good BSF lady down there. Okay, so the glory of God was displayed to Moses. And we have a lot of synergy between the story of Moses and, and what we have here in the first chapter of John. Let's just go back to the Exodus. We'll go back to Exodus chapter where is it? Exodus chapter thirty three. Quick look at that. Exodus thirty three says this. Verse seven. I'm going to describe this because you know, as the um, Israelites, they came out of the uh, the nation of Egypt. They wandered in the desert for 40 years because of their disobedience. God graciously gave them the law and says, okay, I'm going to display my glory by showing you what my glory is about by the law. And I'm also going to dwell with you. How did God dwell with his people? Fire by night, cloud by day. And um, I'm also going to meet with you, Moses, and I'm going to talk and instruct you. And we read here just an element of that in Exodus 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, uh, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had got, gone into the tent. Quite a humorous looking scene, really, isn't it? Oh, Moses there is taking a, a sort of a, a saunter down the, the camp of Israel, and, and uh, the people are watching. They all sort of go, and I can just imagine them leaning on their tent posts, watching Moses as he walks past, because they know he's going out to the tent of meeting. He knows that he's going to meet with God. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and worship each other's tent door. I find that amazing. The very fact that God's presence was with Moses caused the whole entire nation to rise and worship. Why? Because God was with them. Why? Because it was a visual reminder of his faithfulness. The cloud over the tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses 
turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. A little bit later in this chapter, Moses says, I want to see you, God. I want to see you face to face. And God says, no, you can't do that because no man would see me and live. Go and hide in the cleft of a rock. And you can see the trail of my robe. And that's enough glory for you at the moment. That's enough glory. So we have this picture of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, God dwelling over the nation in that tent. And then John picks up the same theme and says, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. No more was there fear of this cloud descending, but we see the eternal, coexistent Christ walking earth, being among us. Face-to-face communication. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? That God would do that? As one of the famous hymn writers said, God in an inapproachable light, tabernacle dwelt amongst us. And we saw his glory. That's the miracle of the incarnation. Now my question for you here, what glory did we see? What is the glory that John refers to here in this gospel? Remember, John was an eyewitness. John was one of the beloved. And and throughout the book of John, we see um, it said often, the disciple whom Jesus loved. What does he mean by seeing the eternal words of glory? I'll give you some suggestions. The glory he saw was, as he records in the book of John, there are seven signed gifts, or signed miracles, actually not gifts, miracles. He records seven of them. And later in the book of John, he says, well, I could have recorded many, many more, but you know what? If I had recorded many, many more, no book could contain them. I've recorded these seven, these sign miracles. Why? So you know that he is the Son of God. So John saw Jesus' glory in some of the miracles he performed. Another aspect of the Gospel of John is it comes through a wonderful uh, word. And I'll give you, in the, in the original language, it's ego ami. Simply means I am. Jesus uses that statement seven times about himself. He talks about the fact that he is, and you should be able to rattle these off. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gates. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. 
I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the vine. Where else in Scripture do we hear the term I am? Moses. Exodus. What did God say to Moses when the bush was burning? Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. What did Moses say to God? Who am I to say sent me? I am. Has sent you. There's no further proof that we need that Jesus was God based on the fact that he says, I am. And that's what upset the Pharisees so much, you know. You're putting yourself in the same place as God. You're saying, you are God. You're going to be crucified. I know, on the resurrection and life. Later in John, you, you read the fact that when the, when the soldiers come to, to arrest Jesus, there's one poignant moment where Jesus says, and they say, well, we're going to arrest you. Or he says, who are you looking for? Oh, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, I am. What happens? The soldiers all fall on the ground. They're on the ground. Because of the word, the power of Christ. So, Jesus' glory was displayed through the sign miracles. Jesus' glory is displayed through the fact that he is the I am. But you know, greater still, Jesus' glory was displayed through the cross. And folks, that is the meaning of Christmas. The meaning of Christmas isn't a baby born in a manger. The meaning of Christmas is the purpose of that baby born in a manger. And the purpose is, is the fact that the Lord of glory, the Logos, the Word, became flesh for the purpose of going to the cross to conquer death. Only the creator of the universe could restore a corrupt creation. And he did it by the way of the cross. The nation was waiting for a Messiah, a political king, someone who would reign on high. Yes, that will happen, but not yet. In his first advent, there had to be a way of salvation. Now, you might be here and you may not understand that. But this world is a broken place. You only have to view the events of the last seven days to know that. In many ways, the lucky country is immune from brokenness. Not this week. We have eight children stabbed to death in Cairns. We have a terrorist attack in Sydney. We have murders left, right and centre. The world is broken because man is sinful. That's our state. That's why 
the word came. The word came to write that. The word came to provide a way of salvation. Jesus Christ is his name and he is the only way of salvation. His glory is seen through the cross. And once again, that makes no sense to me. Why would the creator of the universe die on a cross? Simple, because of his great love for us. Love beyond our understanding, love beyond our comprehension. But you know what? A love that can be appropriated by faith in If you don't know the Lord, place your faith in him. He is the only way of salvation. Christmas represents the time he came to earth so that you and I could have a way of salvation through the cross. It's one of the verse I want to read here, just in conclusion. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And for our sake, God made him to be sin, Christ, who knew no sin. He was spotless, without blemish, sinless. Why? So that he might become the righteousness of God. This is what we call the great exchange. I love that term, the great exchange. God and Christ's perfect righteousness, sinless, knew no sin, absolutely perfection. Exchange that for our sinfulness. Isn't that incredible? If you're an accountant, you'll know that as imputed righteousness. And as I understand that, that means that whatever is on our side of the ledger has been imputed, has been given over to the other side of the ledger. And our side of the ledger is clean. So think about that mounting credit card bill. It's been wiped clean. That's what God has done through Christ with our sin. So why? We can have a relationship with him. We can have an eternal home. We can be called sons and daughters of the Most High. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So the glory of Christ in the Gospel of John is not seen in his splendor or majesty according to what John writes. 
But it's seen in the seven sign miracles that prove that Christ is fully God and yet fully man. His glory is seen in the seven I am statements. I'm the bread of life. I'm the resurrection. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. But ultimately, the glory of Christ is seen at the cross and through the resurrection. And that's the meaning of Christmas. Folks, you have an incredible opportunity. We've got so many young families in this congregation. And I appeal to you. Tell your children the meaning of Christmas. I appeal to you. Open the scriptures. Don't look at the birth narrative. Look at the purpose narrative. Look at the reason why Jesus was born in such a miraculous way. So that a great exchange could take place. So now on the cross, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, your sin is dealt with. He takes it on himself. And you are now cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. The famous carol goes this way. I'm not going to sing, don't worry, I'm just going to read the words. That's the first amen I've had all day. Go on, dear John. It's verse 2 of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Just listen to these words. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Don't go through this Christmas, folks, without understanding the meaning of Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. The greatest gift of all time is the gift of Christ and his offer of salvation.